Um, I'm grateful for the invitation to come and be part of this series while I'm on sabbatical here in Europe. Um, I'm very far away from my home of New Zealand, but it's really lovely to be here, um, and hopefully this will be the start of a potential continued conversation between myself and, and maybe the, the larger group here, or just individuals in the room who are interested in doing this kind of scholarship or learning more um, specifically about this kind of identity management. So uh, just a little bit about me, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from New Zealand. So I was born and raised in Texas in the United States and did my degrees in sociology and then my PhD in human development. And I took a faculty job in human development at Massey University in Palmerston North, New Zealand, a little over 10 years ago. Um, so I've been there long enough for it to really kind of feel like home. I am in fact a Fat Studies scholar, um, and Fat Studies, it's a relatively new discipline. Um, it only, within the last decade, got its first official academic journal. Um, it's building as a, as a literature, slowly but surely. It's quite similar to like women's studies, queer studies, indigenous studies, in the sense of it's interdisciplinary and it's mainly scholars from their home fields, ranging from the social sciences, physical sciences, humanities, law, medicine, kind of from all of them, who are quite interested in doing work that in the case of fat studies, centers fatness and centers the fat body. Um, it works from a very different perspective than like obesity research, um, which centers the pathologization of a specific body type, that of obesity, um, and works often from a very deficit perspective as Placing obesity in the center is a bad thing, something to be fixed or cured. Fat studies uh, rejects most of that and instead centers fatness and the lived experiences of fat individuals. My particular area of research is interested in how, what I would academically say, how a fat individuals uh, cope with spoiled identities, how having a spoiled identity impacts on the health and well-being of fat people um, in lay terms. Basically, what is it like to be a fat person in a world that hates you? Um, is the work that I particularly do. I'm also quite active as a fat activist. Um, so I'm both an academic and an activist. And in my work as an activist, my work is about promoting the idea that fat people deserve the same rights and the same dignity as non-fat people. Um, I engage in my activism in a lot of different ways, but probably the most uh, regular way and the way that I'm most well known for in the activist community is I have a weekly fat positive radio show in New Zealand that's a podcast um, in iTunes and, and SoundCloud and other places where you can find podcasts itself. Um, so this, a lot of the stuff that I study is actually stuff that I'm actually actively engaged in as well, which I think strengthens my scholarship in some ways, but it also complicates my scholarships in some ways, but that's a, that's a different kind of uh, conversation. But regardless of it's, whether it's my work as a, an activist, my work as an academic, or just the life that I lead in a fat body, um, kind of the foundational premise of all of that is the fact that we live in a fat phobic world. Um, we live in a world where fat is seen as a bad thing, that where fat is something to be, to be treated, to be cured, to be feared, to be disgusted by. And there's a lot of people that actually study anti-fat attitudes themselves, and we find them across the lifespan, in kids as young as three, all the way up through you know aging adults on their deathbeds, we find them worldwide. So it actually used to be that when we would do cross-sectional studies around anti-fat attitudes, for the most part, it was largely considered like a white Western uh, kind of problem. But the recent research that's been done within the last decade has found that most of those cultural differences have pretty much dissolved. So largely through the internet and through colonization, through education and entertainment, again, mainly through the internet, 
uh, anti-fat attitudes are, are pretty much universal worldwide. Now, the cultural there are still cultural differences present. So, like what's considered fat still varies culture by culture. Uh, but the idea that being fat is a bad thing, that it's something to be cured, that it's a burden on society, that has very much uh, become a, a worldwide attitude and not just something within these white Western cultures is the way that we used to kind of approach it. Um, there's a lot of different ways we can frame where these anti-fat attitudes come from. We can talk about the fact that within Judeo-Christian frameworks, fatness is a sin. Uh, it represents an intersection of two of the deadly sins, gluttony and sloth. Um, within a neoliberal context, we can talk about, you know, that fat individuals represent failed citizens that are seen as making poor choices and therefore uh, potentially being burdens on the state, especially within kind of healthcare systems. Quite often now, a lot of anti-fat attitudes are actually kind of presented through this health burden lens, this symbolic debt uh, that we perceive fat people to be uh, placing on the rest of society. And of course, that dovetails really nicely with Robert Crawford's idea of healthism, which is this kind of idea that the new social contract is that we have a moral obligation to each other to be healthy, to engage in health-seeking behaviors, to make healthful choices. So there's a lot of different ways we can actually frame and unpack why fat is bad. Um, I'm not going to do that today because that's not the purpose of what I'm going to talk about. But if you are interested in that, there's been a lot of really good work done by other fat city scholars looking at it from, you know, like a from a moral perspective, from a neoliberal perspective, from a capitalistic perspective, uh, the role that the media plays. It's an incredibly interesting area of research. And some of the most interesting stuff is looking at it historically in the sense of like when did anti-fat attitudes really kind of start um, and how have they changed in terms of the way that they're presented. So for a while, anti-fat attitudes are really just about like, ew, you know, fatness is gross. You know, like I don't like looking at fat bodies. Um, and so therefore fat is bad. And now it's very much more, more much more into fatness is bad because it's unhealthy. Um, and you know, we all know that being unhealthy is a bad thing. So I won't go into, you know, kind of the whys and the where of where these attitudes come from. But if you are interested in that, I would encourage you to look into the growing body of scholarship that uh, that is around that. But basically, you know, these these anti-fat attitudes that we hold. Um, that we hold around the world across the lifespan, they impact on people of all sizes. So that's a really important thing to note. It's not just something that's negative for fat people. It's worse for fat people, but people of all sizes um, are impacted by these, by these attitudes. And of course, fat people grow up in the same fat-hating culture as the rest of us. So they're just as likely to hold anti-fat attitudes as non-fat people. You know, They don't escape internalizing um, the attitudes of the culture that they grow up in. Um, but basically, at the moment, we're kind of living in this like obesity epidemic narrative where uh, that is very much put forward often as what I would argue kind of as a scapegoat for most of the global kind of problems that we're facing. So whether we're talking about like mainstream media stories, but also in academic journals, you can find articles that are being published about how obesity is to blame for terrorism, for global warming, for weapons of mass destruction. You kind of name it, and someone has figured out a way to say, obesity is causing this. This is the problem. Um, it's an incredibly handy scapegoat for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, some people might joke that you know fat bodies are big, easy targets. Um, you know, there's a lot of money funding-wise uh, for solving or for curing obesity and for solving the obesity epidemic. So I can appreciate how a lot of scholars over the last decade have 
um, slowly kind of shifted some of the work that they were doing that might not have really had anything to do with body weight or size, shifting more into that space in order to kind of access the growing number of funds that are actually available. But for whatever reason it is, um, because of you know these anti-fat attitudes that we have and the fact that fatness is very bad, what we're finding is it's not only scholars that are doing this work and um, you know kind of talking heads and TV and online that are talking about this, but governments are now you know have been for at least a decade, mostly around the world, engaged in these anti-obesity programs, right? They're framing this as one of their net, you know, problems or threats to the, the well-being of their nation. They're coming up with white papers. They're asking their public health officials in order to come up with campaigns to fight back against obesity. And of course, when we're talking about the war on obesity, anytime you hear the word obesity, I would encourage you to replace that with fat people. Like replace the phrase obesity with fat people. Because when we're talking about the war on obesity, what we're talking about is a, a war on fat people. We're talking about the problem of childhood obesity. We're talking about the problem of fat kids. Um, and so often than not, actually the fact that these are individual people that we're talking about is often lost in these conversations. It's very much framed as more of an abstract kind of concept of something to be fixed. And we forget that we're actually talking about people like me that these are governmental programs to get rid of people like me. Some people could argue that these are programs of social eugenics, right? Saying these are people we don't want in our society, so how do we get rid of them? And of course, there's a lot of underpinning assumptions to that, you know, including the fact that being fat is bad, that we know how to make people non-fat again, that once they're non-fat again, there will be benefits, potentially health benefits that come along with that. Um, the science around that, though, is pretty shaky. <laughs> So it's, it's an interesting thing to really start trying to kind of unpack. And it's a really interesting and I would imagine incredibly difficult balance for people that are, you know, kind of generally kind of concerned or interested in things like population health and, you know, what is the balance that you make when you're saying, okay, well, we know that stigma and oppression is incredibly bad for people's health. I mean, we have decades of research specifically around like racism, for example where we know that racism is bad for people's like physical, not just emotional or mental health, but also their physical health. And we're starting to build that same literature around sizeism, around the stigma that fat people experience. So we know that fat stigma is also bad for people's physical health. It raises, you know, reactive proteins and increases insulin, and a lot of, you know, increases inflammation and a lot of different other kinds of health problems. And so there really is a difficult balance that people who are truly interested in concepts and issues around population health are having to kind of straddle and figuring out how much stigma are they actually comfortable using. Because at the moment, most anti-obesity campaigns are very much largely engaging with promoting fat stigma. Um, and there's been actually quite a lot of scholarship lately around the ethics of that. Is it ethical for public health campaigns to use stigma um, as a tool to reduce or to address the problem they're trying to address, which is, of course, fat people and fat bodies. Now, some of them would argue they would point to, like, smoking and say, you know, a little bit of stigma is okay, and actually we know it's really effective because look at how well we've done over the last couple of decades of getting people to, fewer people to, to smoke, and most of that work has been done around stigma. Um, and, of course, one of the major problems with trying to use that in terms of understanding issues of fatness and fat people is that smoking is a behavior. My fatness is not a behavior. This is, you know, my fat body is not a behavior that I engage in in the same way that smoking is. And of course we make a lot of assumptions about, well sure, your body's not a behavior, but your body's the result of behaviors, such as what you're eating and whether or not you're exercising. 
And again, I say assumptions because when we actually start to peel back the science on that, it's a lot shakier than what most people think. So I appreciate that it's an incredibly difficult area for people who really are interested in improving population health and trying to figure out the best way to move forward without necessarily doing even more harm uh, and even more damage than, than what they're trying to address. But when we, what I'm interested in though is like the fat people themselves. So I'm actually interested, so what does it mean to be a fat person actually living in this world where your government is actively trying to get rid of you, the rest of the culture tells you regularly that you're, that you're gross, that you're unhealthy, that you're a burden, that you're not wanted. Um, and basically, you know, largely what we find is that you know, most fat people uh, engage in what we would call good fatty, they, 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 they engage in what we would call good fatty behaviors. So most fat people internalize those anti-fat attitudes, they feel shame about their fat body, they feel guilt about their fat body, they, and they often perform behaviors that as a culture we recognize as good fatty behaviors. So they talk about their exercise routine, they uh, actively choose to eat salads when in public, uh, they apologize for the space that they take up, sometimes in covert ways, sometimes in overly over, overly overt, okay, that's a bit redundant, sorry. Um, sometimes in, in incredibly overt ways where they'll actually kind of apologize whether you're sitting next to that person on a plane or maybe another form of public transport and they actually say, apologize to the person next to them for the space that their body's taking up. These are all things that are good, fatty behaviors. These are ways that fat people have learned to make themselves a bit more palatable to the rest of society. Um, and it's the ways that society responds more favorably to them. And we know this empirically, that uh, individuals respond more favorably to fat people if those fat people are engaging in performances that we believe would lead to weight loss. So if they're choosing to eat the salad, if they're choosing to walk to work rather than drive, if they're you know, talking about their Weight Watchers meetings. And these are good fatties. You know, they're actively trying to not be fat anymore. They're apologetic for the space that they're taking up. And they feel the appropriate levels of, of shame and guilt that as a culture, we want and expect them to feel. But not all fat people. Some fat people uh, have very much chosen to go in a very different direction. Um, and they, a lot of them are engaged as activists themselves. They've become quite political about their fatness and about their bodies. Um, and these fat people are what, in the fatty sphere, we call bad fatties. Um, and so bad fatties are the fat people that refuse to apologize for the, tape, for the space that they take up, that refuse to feel ashamed or guilty about the size of their body, that refuse to necessarily perform their fatness in the ways that the culture is most comfortable with, in the ways that the culture expects or want them to do that. Um, and there's actually a lot of different ways that bad fatties um, engage in being bad fatties, but I'm especially interested in the ways that they do that online. Uh, I'm quite interested in social media, both as a form of identity management, but also actually how academics themselves use social media in their own scholarship. Um, and so I've spent some time looking at how fat activists uh, perform their fatness wrong, if you will, specifically using Web 2.0 tools. And so a Web 2.0 tool is a tool where the individual online is a content creator. So many of you, some of you, I'm looking at the ages, I'm guessing people's ages here, I'm assuming. Um, so it used to be that for when you would go online, you would go online to consume other people's content, maybe to order some things, maybe to read some things. 
Um, now though, more people, when they're going online, they might be consuming other people's contents, but they're also likely creating their own through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter, through blogging. These are what we call Web 2.0 tools. They're tools that allow people online to actually be content creators rather than simply content consumers. And so a lot of bad fatties are using Web 2.0 tools in order to perform their fatness wrong online. And so I thought I would go through some examples of that and some reasons or some ways that we can frame it to kind of better understand it. Um, and I do want to make sure that I leave plenty of room for questions at the end. Quite a few of them use Web 2.0 tools in order to queer fatness. So queering as a theoretical framework or as a methodology kind of at its heart is about rejecting any essential uh, qualities or essential assumptions that we might associate with um, an ontology, a state of being. So if we think about like what it means to be fat um, or the characteristics that we associate with fat bodies, like we could probably come up with a pretty solid list of maybe not what we in this room think, because we're progressive and you know more conscientious than that. But the general public, you know, if we try to come up with a list, we could come up with a list that would probably look something like, you know, fat bodies are inactive, they're they're lazy, they're uh, undisciplined, they're out of control, they lack willpower. We could come up with a list of characteristics that we associate with fatness and with fat bodies. When these fat activists online are queering fatness, one of the things that they're doing is they're kind of upending all of those assumptions. They're saying, um, you know, you want to say that fat bodies are inactive, well, we're going to put together a, a fat synchronized swimming group, uh, which actually isn't an online example, but an example of a group called Aquaporco in Melbourne, Australia, um, that actually had a documentary film made about them. And I mean, you know, they're queering fatness in so many ways because not only are they fat women swimming, which like we all know fat people shouldn't like swim, at least not in public. We don't want to have to see fat bodies in swimsuits. Uh, but these are women who are like engaging in synchronized swimming. And synchronized swimming is actually like historically a very kind of feminized athletic activity. And if you, you know, look back at the history of synchronized swimming and what synchronized swimmers are supposed to look like, what they usually look like, they definitely don't look like fat bodies. Um, and especially not super fat bodies, which is what many of the women who engage in Aquaporco as members are. So when they queer fatness, they're kind of disrupting these assumptions that we have. Oftentimes they're taking kind of the rules around what fatness is supposed to be, what fat bodies are supposed to be like or do or not do, and kind of throwing them out or purposely taking them and flipping them upside down. So fat bodies, you know, Fat people aren't supposed to wear crop tops, fine. We're gonna wear nothing but crop tops. And in fact, there's a great adult coloring book zine called Super Fat Crop Tops. Uh, and it's all drawings of super fat people wearing nothing but crop tops that you can order online and color in yourself if you enjoy uh, coloring in uh, bodies in that way. One of the most common ways that we are presented with fat bodies in the mainstream media are what Dr. Charlotte Cooper calls the headless fatty. So these are fat bodies without heads, right? It's mainly just a bulging abdomen. If we do get a, a head, it's usually a side of the head and it's putting a big piece of food in their mouth. So you don't even really see the face, but you see that they're consuming. It's usually like a double-decker hamburger or you know, something else that, again, good fat people don't, don't, don't eat, right? Because that's not what a good fatty does. Um, and 
Fat study scholars don't actually need to do the research around whether or not this is harmful because feminist scholars established a long time ago that when you present bodies as pieces, it leads to objectification, which is incredibly harmful, partly because it leads to the dehumanizing of the, the group and the, the people that those bodies are attached to. Now, feminist scholars' work was specifically about women's bodies, right? So they were talking about how women's bodies are represented in advertising as like just a leg or the back or just the side of a breast. But there isn't any reason for us to assume that the work that they've done to establish that presenting bodies as pieces leads to objectification and the dehumanizing of those bodies. There isn't any reason for us to assume that that wouldn't also be the case when you only ever present fat people as not having heads, right? When you only present them as, you know, almost these kind of grotesque, just bulging pieces of flesh that don't have a face, right? So it's a lot easier for us to objectify this, to dehumanize this, to not connect to this as, oh, this is another person that might have similar interests to me, that might be like my, my aunt or my father or, you know, my, my friend in that way. And so this is how fat bodies are usually presented to us. And so one of my favorite examples of queering fatness is the Out of Positivity Project, which is a photo activism project from Substantia Jones in New York in the United States. And for the last 10 years, she's been taking pictures of mainly naked or partially naked fat bodies all around the world. Um, and this is a very different way of looking at fat bodies. This is not how we normally see them. Because not only are they being um, posed in a way or presented in a way that isn't inherently shameful or objectified because they're, you know, lacking heads. Um, but also, it, it, this is a very artful kind of presentation. You know, there's a real beauty, there's a real celebration of the bodies in these pictures, and we rarely, if ever, see that when it comes to non-fat bodies. To be honest, we rarely, if ever, see that when it comes to any bodies that aren't, what, white, slim, able-bodied, you know, conventionally attractive. Like, there's a real small box of the kinds of bodies that we normally see. And Substantia, um, one of the things I really like about her work is she's actually kind of taken that to task within her own work as well. And so she's conscious and trying to make sure that she's also, so she's photographing fat people of color and she's photographing fat people with different disabilities. And she's photographing super fat people and she's photographing fat people that might not be like conventionally attractive. Like she tries to be really aware of not just photographing naked fat bodies, but also not just kind of photographing maybe more socially acceptable kind of hourglass, you know, white, uh, still aesthetically attractive, maybe, you know, such a pretty face kind of idea. So she really tries to want to make sure that she's providing a really wide range of representation. Now, a lot of fat activists online actually use photography and use things like Facebook and now mainly Instagram um, as a way of kind of presenting a different visualization of fatness and you know different ways of querying fatness and this is what fatness can be this is this is what fatness can look like um, and of course you know these are more um, I don't want to say amateur because I don't want to take away from them but these aren't like organized structured projects like the out of positivity project in this way these are just fat individuals who as you know part of their daily life or maybe part of their activism are regularly capturing themselves capturing their friends and family in a range of different ways. There was one of my favorite tumblers for a while was called Fat From The Side. Um, and it was a, a fat woman who started the Tumblr because she said that she realized that all of the pictures that she had of herself that you know she really liked and she always shared, they were always like selfies or they were you know kind of full body but they were from the front. And that she had a friend who posted on Facebook a picture of her from the side and she really had a negative response to that. 
she didn't like the way that her body looked from the side. And so she basically kind of leaned into that and she started a whole Tumblr where she did nothing but take pictures of her fat body from the side uh, in order to become more familiar with, well, this is what my body looks like from the side. Um, because that's one of the interesting things around bodies in general is that for so many of us, regardless of our body size, we're not very familiar with our own bodies and like what they look like both in and out of clothes, you know, from the side, full length, um, you know, so I thought her project was incredibly interesting that, you know, she realized that she herself had a quite negative response to what her fat body looked like in profile. And so she said, okay, you know, I'm going to see what I can do with that. And I'm going to try to, you know, present this different kind of a fat body that we're not necessarily ever kind of seen anywhere else. Another way that fat activists uh, perform their fatness wrong in online spaces using Web 2.0 is oftentimes they find it quite powerful and useful uh, to really embrace the negative stereotypes that we associate with fatness. Um, it's interesting because within identity management studies, regardless of what kind of uh, spoiled identity you're looking at, one of the things that we often talk about as part of the danger and part of the damaging that comes from stigma and from uh, spoiled identities is the idea of stereotype threat. Um, so this idea that, uh, um, so for example, like women, um, you know, if you talk to them about how women do tend to do poor on like math tests before math tests, they'll actually do poor on the math test than if you hadn't given them that, hadn't had that conversation beforehand. Um, or, you know, talk about people's stress levels that they have before they even leave the house because uh, they're worried that they're going to get like mocked on the street for their size or catcalled as they walk to the bus or something. These are all things called stereotype threat, and it's this idea that oppressed groups are highly aware of the stereotypes associated with them, and oftentimes they feel a great deal of stress even when they're not experiencing forms of microaggression or overt stigmatization or discrimination, simply because they're really highly conscious of, you know, don't be that fat person, you know, don't be that fat person that everybody expects you to be, or, um, you know, that people just assume that, like, fat people are smelly, or fat people are lazy, or you know, fat people are always gonna do this, don't be that fat person, don't reinforce that stereotype to them. And that's the idea of stereotype threat. And it's incredibly interesting to look at how some activists actually find power in use, and instead of trying to avoid those stereotypes, into actually embracing them. Um, and in a way, again, trying to kind of queer them and, and use them to, to flip the power dynamic in that situation and say, you know what, I'm gonna be a fat girl that's gonna sit here and eat a burger. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm going to enjoy it. And Sophie Hagen, who's a, um, a Danish comedian who has a podcast called Made of, uh, Made of Human, she actually tells this great story of she was in a restaurant eating a burger, and she realized that the uh, younger women at the table next to her were like pointing and laughing. And she didn't know for sure what they were pointing and laughing at her about, but she had a pretty good idea. Uh, and so she ordered a second burger. <laughs> and she talks about the story that she wasn't even really hungry. You know, it's not that she wanted a second burger, and she actually talks about it was difficult for her to actually finish eating the second burger, but she just felt in that moment that the only way that she could have any kind of, you know, dignity in that situation and be able to kind of take back some of the power from these giggling girls was to be like, you're laughing at me because I ordered a burger? Watch me eat a second one. So there's a lot of instances of this online. Um, so for example, uh, this is uh, a woman named Carissa who has a YouTube channel. So she uh, does vodcasts uh, that are all around fatness and, and her experiences and like 
Um, a lot of what she does now, actually, she answers people's questions, which is incredibly interesting and useful to see the kinds of questions that she gets and the kinds of questions, kinds of people sending in the questions um, and how that kind of breaks down. Another one, um, and I realize it's not gonna, I'm gonna have to exit out and exit back into play this. This is just a really short video by Wyatt Wright and friends. That's actually a bit of an earworm, so I apologize if later tonight while you're cooking dinner or riding, riding the bus, if all of a sudden you find yourself singing, uh, singing along with that. I, I do apologize. Um, <laughs> I love that video, and actually Wyatt Riot and his friends went on to make actually a series of really short uh, of other videos of like storified videos and whatnot. Um, it's lovely for a lot of different reasons, you know, but basically what we have is, you know, we have a self-identified, um, you know, queer fat person singing about all their favorite foods um, and say, you know, don't say diet, say like riot and put it in your mouth um, and have a good time. And of course, there's, we could read like double and hundreds into that as well if we wanted to. Um, and I think what I found, at least in, in, in my own work and looking at this, one of the fat stereotypes that oftentimes um, fat activists use to perform their fatness wrong that they really do embrace and, and belly into is the one around food. Uh, and that's probably because that's the one that's most um, upheld within our society uh, the most. And it's probably one of the areas where fat people do actually experience the most overt forms of, of stigmatization and, and microaggression. So um, there's nothing like being in the line at the grocery store and having a perfect stranger like comment on what's in your cart. Um, or, you know, like Sophie Hagen trying to, to eat her meal in public, having people point and laugh at her. So a lot of them, you know, do it around food. Uh, the last one that I'll share that's specific from, to this is, this is Jen Leggett, and she had a Tumblr called, But What About Your Health? Where she took any time she got um, a letter or a tweet or a message that included some version of, but what about your health, but aren't you worried about your health, but aren't you unhealthy? And she posted the, the message that she got on the Tumblr and then posted her response, which was always a gif of her eating, again, like a food that fat people aren't supposed to eat um, because we you know, very much moralize food as a whole culture and all people of all sizes do this. 
you know, so how often do you hear someone in your life say, oh, I was bad last night, I had a dessert, or I'm going to be good today and have a salad or exercise or whatever it is. You know, we attach these moral aspects and righteousness of like, I'm a better person because I took the stairs kind of idea. And that, of course, goes back to healthism. You know, but when it comes to fat people, it's incredibly poignant, it's especially salient, because people will both notice and often kind of point out and sneer at the fat person at McDonald's eating a Big Mac without paying any attention to both the non-fat person next to them eating the same thing, or the fact that they themselves are also in line at McDonald's. Um, you know, and of course that's because it actually isn't about like the health factor about whether or not people should be eating McDonald's or if a Big Mac is a, is a healthful choice, because of they're all there eating the same thing. It's about, you know, when fat people engage in those kinds of behaviors, oftentimes we get incredibly angry and uncomfortable. And again, that's because that's them being bad fatties. They're not performing their fatness the way that we want to. So um, Jen had a whole range of these gems. So like the top, she's got the apple pie from McDonald's, and then of course she's spraying whipped cream directly into her mouth. And it's not just that she's eating, she is purposely eating foods that fat people are supposed to deny themselves out of guilt and shame and in their desire to be not fat anymore, to discover the broken, thin person inside of them. <laughs> you know, she's picking specific foods. You know, it's the whipped cream, it's the hot apple pie from McDonald's. She's got one where it's a brownie, she's got one where it's a donut. I think she has one where it's a, a slice of pizza. So she's being really purposeful in embracing, you know, kind of these fat stereotypes and also these behaviors and these foods that fat people are supposed to deny themselves for their own well-good and for the rest of society's discomfort. And of course, um, there's a lot of hashtags that have been used over the, the years by individuals who are performing their fatness wrong online. My personal favorite was hashtag not your good fatty. Um, and this is one that swept across Twitter within the fatosphere a few years ago where fat people were, you know, kind of then presenting up examples of, of not your good fatty, like, you know, I break chairs when I'm not sorry, and like I eat pizza without apology, and you know, the kinds of things that we don't necessarily say out loud, like you're not supposed to say out loud, it almost seems impolite to say some of these things out loud. Um, but by saying them out loud, and by using this particular hashtag, these activists are, they're not only being incredibly subversive, um, but you could argue that you know this is a way for them to engage in a form of identity management that's both coming out around their fatness, so refusing to be apologetic and refusing to apologize, uh, but also in a way kind of shifting back some of that power from the dominant culture that insists to them, you should be unhappy, you should be apologetic, you should be ashamed. And this is them shifting away some of that power and saying, you know, I have agency, I'm not gonna feel the way you want me to feel, uh, I'm going to be, well, as Amanda Levitt says, you know, I'm all your fat stereotypes, I'm your fat fucking nightmare. Uh, it doesn't really uh, get any clearer than that. One of the other ways um, that we can look at how fat activists use web 2 tools tools um, in order to engage in performing their fatness wrong online, uh, or at least kind of pushing back against the obesity epidemic narratives, are looking at examples where fat activists have specifically have been reactive to something that, that has actually occurred. So um, one of my favorite examples comes from, from the start of this book. I don't know if any of you um, are familiar with this book, but this was a kid's book that came out several years ago. And as you can see, you know, it's entitled Maggie Goes on a Diet. As you can see from the image, it tells you what the book is about, right? So you've got fat Maggie who's looking into the mirror and being reflected back to her is non-fat Maggie. And this book is exactly what you're probably assuming it is. 
So we meet this fat girl who's being teased by her classmates, who doesn't feel like she can play the sport she wants to play because she's fat, who doesn't feel like she can audition for the school play because she's fat, who eats alone in the kitchen by herself at night, probably you know because her parents would you know scold her if they, they found out she was doing that. And when this book came out, it produced a lot of really strong reactions, actually, from a really interesting coalition of people. So like fat activists were really quick to pounce on this and point out how harmful this was. Uh, people, uh, child psychologists, were really quick to pounce on this and talk about how harmful it was. The loudest voices, though, were people from the eating disorder sector. The people in the eating disorder sectors had a lot to say about how incredibly damaging a book like this would be. Um, and my favorite response to this book uh, came from a, a blogger, Red Number Three, who used his own graphic uh, design skills and imagined a whole other world for Maggie. Uh, because as you can probably imagine, in, in the actual book, what happens is, you know, all these things and then Maggie like loses weight and of course her life becomes perfect. The kids stop teasing her and she gets on the school play and she gets on the sport she wants to do that. Um, so what, what Red Number Three, what Brian did was he imagined a whole different future for Maggie. And actually the first book cover he put out was the Maggie Needs Back to Weight and Learns to Accept Her Body. Um, and that one was a, a specific reference to the fact that 95% of people are unable to maintain a permanent weight loss, permanent meaningful weight loss. So that means more than 10 kilos for more than five years. Only 5% of people that try can actually do that. Um, so you know, more than likely this, this is the realistic telling of what Maggie's future was gonna be. Sure, she loses all the weight, but she's getting it back probably even a little bit more, because that's usually almost always what happens. So that was the first one he did. And then he started thinking about if Maggie had a different environment, if she didn't live in a fat hating world, or if she had parents that told her, sweetie, you can still audition for the school play, even though you're fat. You can still play soccer, even though you're fat. If she had teachers in a school system that instead of turning to her as the kid being bullied for her fatness and saying, well, you know, if you lost a little weight, they would bully you more. If she instead had teachers in a school system that turned to the bullies and said, it's not okay to be bullies, you need to knock it off. Maggie's future might have looked a lot different. And so he imagined all these other different covers. Um, and he, I think he did about 12 in total. And like one that's not up there is like Maggie gets a master's in gender studies and like a few other, you know, different ideas of like all the ways that Maggie's life could look um, if she had had a, a different kind of environment responding back to her when she found herself really unhappy um, in her life that you know may or may not have been uh, related to her fatness. Another one, uh, and this is uh, an example from, from my own work actually as an activist, was this was a tweet that came out again several years ago um, that landed very loudly uh, in the fatosphere. Um, and part of the reason that this got such a large response that it did, besides the fact that it's just incredibly gross, was the fact that um, it was discovered, not discovered, it was really quick, people were really quick to find out that this gentleman on his faculty where he was, he was actually the graduate program uh, chair of the committee that decided who got into the PhD program in his area. So not only did he have you know, this incredibly hateful um, idea, like uh, attitude and prejudice, but he was actually in a position of power to determine which grad students got into his PhD program and which didn't. And you know, he's probably not alone, in this kind of thinking, I mean, most people would actually tell you that, yeah, you know, fatness represents being lazy or lacking willpower or not being as disciplined as you could be. Um, and most fat people, again, believe that very much. Like, all those other diets fail because of my lack of willpower. This next one, I'm going to be different. It's going to be different this time. 
So there were a lot of responses to this. People wrote letters, people wrote letters to the institution. I was less interested in talking directly back to him because if I spent my time as an activist like trying to talk one-on-one -on -one to people who are, you know, hate fat people, that would kind of be all I would ever have time to do. And I have manuscripts to write and fan fiction to read and Madonna songs to listen to. I mean, I have things, right? I have a life. Um, so instead what I did was I actually started a Tumblr and I invited any fat person with a PhD to send me a picture of themselves and the year they graduated their PhD in the university they graduated from. Um, and within the first 24 hours, I had over 300 responses of fat PhDs who were quite happy to become part of this visual repository to contradict this idea um, that fat people are unable to do PhDs because they obviously lack the willpower to not be fat anymore, so therefore could never possibly complete a doctorate degree. Um, and so this is uh, something that still exists today, so I mean it will theoretically exist until I take it down or Tumblr takes it down, or hopefully they never will. And I still get emails on occasion from someone who has recently finished their PhD and knows about this project, and so they send me their photo and say, please add me. And I'm always very, very happy to add them in that way. So those are just a couple of examples um, of different ways that fat activists are using Web 2.0 tools to, you could say, perform their fatness wrong, to be bad fatties, to disrupt against the obesity epidemic narrative. Um, hopefully this has given you several different things to think about, maybe some things that you want to go look up yourself um, on Tumblr or Facebook or Twitter, maybe some hashtags that you want to go discover for yourself. But I'm very happy to answer any questions or hear any kind of comments or concerns. I do have my email and like my Twitter and stuff up there. So if you want to ask me things like kind of one-on-one -on -one or in private, or if you want to like send me the angry email that what I'm doing is dangerous and I'm glorifying obesity, feel free to send that my way. Um, always very happy to continue those conversations outside of this space as well. But for now, I think we have about 15 minutes before we have to give up the room. So. Okay, thank you very much.